Hello, Heron. Yes, you don't have to call me. <laughs> You're perfectly capable of calling me. That's right. Very good. Very good. We have been absolutely positively inundated by listener-related questions. I have what I thought were actually four pages, but have turned out to only be two pages, probably because somehow I intuitively lost the other two pages <laughs> worth of questions. I think this is going to be a super show. I'm, yeah, uh, I was... Uh, I'm ready. I, I've been... You know, actually going to the page. Very you know? good. I mean, I never yeah. even bothered. Well, I know I always sort of looked once <laughs> in a while, but uh, you know, and and uh, the quality of discussion is um, quite nice. So I'm anticipating that we might have a few new listeners, thanks to what should we call them? Well, let's call them listener Mike and listener Marie, as not to uh, give forth their co-workers, family members, and other folk their full. Yeah, we don't want to out them here, right? <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, they have been doing a phenomenally good job. I mean, my anticipation is, I'm not exactly sure. I think I, when I see Marie Camacho, sorry, um, listener Marie's Facebook page, I'm reminded of the area in which she lives, but I just can never remember it. She's relatively close to you though, Heron. So yeah. you might be seeing, you might be seeing stone ape related uh, posters, <laughs> you know. In your well, I think it's vicinity. a great idea. You know, uh, if it gets one person here who is ready to play this game, it will have succeeded. Very definitely. So I just wanted to start the show by thanking both of them. Because, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I'm well, just, thank you for doing it. You yeah. made it. It has to happen eventually. It, it, it goes, well, it goes, by, thank everybody, yeah. But thank yeah. you for, you know, and the best part about it is I'm so in disagreement with the way you've actually formulated it that uh, that it's a perfect entree to discussion with anybody who comes in, you know, with the misconceptions that that flyer puts on them. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. In fact, I wanted to start the show, particularly as your wine glass is, is full. Oh, you want to get me before I've begun to exactly. fade out, right? Exactly. Yeah, so that's assuming I'm sharper now than I will be uh, an hour from now. It's I'm, never a good assumption. You, you tend to be, well, sharpness. Anyway, let's move on from that particular point. So I had the privilege through the week of listening to your discussion with KMO. <laughs> if only I could remember it now. Well, the thing that interests me about it is, I guess it comes down to the five stupidities. Really? My view is, somewhere between the five stupidities in eight seconds and the five stupidities in an hour and... It's 56 15, minutes now. Well, someone got it down to 50 minutes, I thought. There's a 50-minute no. version on YouTube. Is that an uh, unauthorized version? That's unauthorized. Well, I don't know. I haven't, uh, anyway, uh, the, the last edit I did is 56 minutes long. Okay. Well, I think there's a 50-minute version on YouTube. They so. probably just cut out all the best parts that I liked the most. Well, this is the interesting part, you see, because my view is that the five stupidities... In fact, I'm going to be honest with you, Heron. Mm-hmm. My plan is to rebrand the five stupidities. And uh-huh. I want to start this through a series of... We could call them the, 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 the five inconvenient abnormalities. Let's move on from the name. <laughs> okay. My sense from listening to the KMO recording was, when's he going to get to the five stupidities? Is it going to come next? When's he going to get to the five stupidities? Did when's I ever get up? to it? At the end of the recording, you mentioned the podcast... And you and he spent about five minutes, and this is normally audio that I cut, folks, from Stone Ape recording when Heron and I did this, wandering through how you actually find the podcast. (laughs) Now, I know know you're very much caught in a kind of, um, you know, Tibetan mysticism 
kind of view associated with that people really need to want in order to discover in yeah, terms of getting absolutely. I don't see that as Tibetan mysticism. I see it as wasting your seed. Well, here's my view. Yeah. I, I think actually it should be a... And this is why I wanted to do the five stupidities in eight seconds. Oh, yeah. Because well, I yeah, that's fine. No, this- I, I perfectly get that. Yeah. I understand that. I guess my concern is if you say, if you say, and firstly, the KMO thing, you never actually got to the point of what, what you do, who you are, where you are, what's going yeah, on with that, this. That wasn't, again, that was really a personal conversation. I want, I just wanted to talk to him. I mean, I didn't have any agenda at all other than making a connection. Mm. So, uh, to take it, but that's basically all I ever do anyway. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I do have an agenda, obviously, yeah. always, but, um, I was just there to make a connection. Okay. So as I've been practicing, for folks listening in, particularly new listeners, the way Heron and I started communicating was associated with the fact that Heron had a means of debugging wild English, as he termed. And the well, five, so he claims. So he claims. <laughs> the five stupidities are the word the, the verb to be, absolutism, reification, and two-valued logic. Boom, da-da, there you go. You got I'm it. Going That's to, all you need. I'm going to let you in on a little secret here, Heron. Mm-hmm. I surveyed the Stonate Facebook group through the week, as you know, associated mm-hmm. with who had actually listened to the full audio. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, right. I have never listened to the full audio. Yeah. And I was interested, actually, that a number of folk had listened to it. I mean, th- really? three people had. Two or three people have yeah. heard it. Good, okay. End to end. The reason I haven't listened to it is because it irritated me, and I already knew what the five stupidities yeah, were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the other thing is that yeah. I think people can come to it. I, When you first told me about the five stupidities, I thought I've already come to... I mean, the distinction between the word, the absolutism, reification, and two-valued logic, I think they are all... They basically all have the same root, which is, I guess, probably distilled in absolutism. I mean, reification for me is yeah, a form of absolutism. Yeah. yeah. See, I, see, I think you're absolute. just placing way too much emphasis on the five stupidities. They're just a method. That's all. It's just a way to become, uh, to put yourself in a position of, of observing the language machine as opposed to being in it. So those are like uh, methods, things you can focus on. And in the process of focusing on those, this there's a new you that emerges that is observing the language machine from afar as opposed to embedded in it, like most people are most of the time. So, so, so the five stupidities are just a means to an end. The, 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 the crux of the issue is breaking the identification with the voice in the head. Certainly. That's and, the issue. And I think that's an interesting point because you didn't make that – I don't think you made that point clearly in the conversation. Yeah, I probably didn't. Like I say, I really wasn't there with an agenda other than just to figure out who he he is and who I am and see if we have any business together. It's interesting, actually, because he has a formality to him in the interaction, which I find quite stilted. But I think you, I mean, your interaction with him. Well, I realized he was interviewing me. I I was a little disappointed in that because because I really didn't go there to be interviewed. I wanted to just sort of have have a spontaneous conversation and see how it developed. And I did. (laughs) Yeah, you did eventually. I mean, you were able to interrupt. He realized that actually you were someone who probably was going to have more of a chat than a a traditional interview. I'm frustrated by the interviewing style as well. I think it creates a kind of false 
a false well, dichotomy. I think, it, I think there are times when that's appropriate. Yes. You know, for certain subjects with certain people under certain circumstances, that's a perfectly reasonable approach to things. It's just not what I'm pre- – I mean, I, and I don't mind doing that kind of stuff either. I mean, I can do that too, but that takes a whole different mindset than going in to uh, meet somebody and have an interaction with them. Certainly. KMO <laughs> is normally a listener to Stone Ape, and it occurred to me what we do here, we think we're giving – away a good amount of information but people do some people listen to this and graze from it and through the conversation i realized even though KMO was a listener (laughs) Mm -hmm. he didn't really understand what the whole language monkey concept was he kind of didn't really understand he understood the notion of the voice in the head i thought it was particularly good that he took to task your kind of utopian you know Mm -hmm. 30 to 50 years rap yeah that part yeah but i mean to be clear here well that's part of his rap though see certainly Yes. <laughs> you know. So he, yeah, you're right. He focused on the bits that he he liked. Well, he's, his whole thing is that. Uh, well, anyway, go on. Yeah. So for folks listening in, the notion of the evolution from language monkey to Earthling is something that people kind of opt into, right, Heron? I mean, that's the principle. Um, I, I, you know, there's a lot of ways to talk about that. I haven't actually settled on any particular angle on that yet. So, so that's, see, this is part of what this year and probably next is going to be about is, is making some decisions about which way to present this stuff. There's, there's a lot of ways and, and doing it. I mean, each one's going to have its own consequences. So I, I need to understand that. And I'm not clear yet on how to formulate some of those things. They're easily formulatable, but every single one of them is uh, a bastardization of the reality, which is much more complex. Certainly. So let's go back to first principles. A baby is born, and a baby is raised by non language monkey parents. Mm, boy, what does a fortunate that, baby. <laughs> does, is that baby by default becoming a language monkey initially and then having to move from language monkey habits? Oh, well, listen, language, we're in, in, see, actually, again, that's why I say the, you've taken, you've, you've reified these concepts deeper than I do anyway. Uh, <laughs> You know, uh, language monkey is really just a biological classification. I, I mean, we're all language monkeys. I'm, I'm a language monkey. Everybody's a language monkey. But that, that is a description of the biological organism that I'm hanging out in right now. Okay. So the question is, how does the language monkey's language machine actually function? That's the issue. And that, that change is the change between what I call a language monkey and an earthling. Among, uh, an earthling still inhabits a language monkey. <laughs> so it's impossible to break the language monkey cycle. Well, uh, no, I think it is possible. That's what I'm saying. I think biology is uh, the past. I think probably uh, in some time, I, I don't think in the next 30, 50 years, although I think we'll be long on the way towards it, is that we're moving into the matrix. That is the future of consciousness and sentience in the universe. Mm. Biology was just uh, step one. So in that regard, it's not that the language monkey is born. It is that the entity is born into the matrix. Um, uh, I don't know. I'm, that sounds a little too highfalutin for me. Mm. Uh, let me let me think about that for a second. Well, I see that, that the language machine itself emerges with the language. I mean, a language monkey is really just a, another monkey, except it's got an extraordinary brain that allows it to do this language stuff. It's quite different than even the bonobos. Okay. Mm. 
So that's what I mean by a language monkey. We're clearly another fucking primate, but the thing that distinguishes us from all other systems on this planet, as far as I can tell, is language. So that's what I mean by a language monkey. We're language monkeys. The question is, how does the, how does the language machine actually function? And presently, it's about this identification. There's this false sense of this abstract concept of self that has evolved somehow that is identified with the voice itself. And, and so therefore, whatever the language machine says is acted upon. It's, well, it's much more complex than that. But in any case, the, po- the, the break point for me is when a, when a person, whatever that means, realizes that the voice in their head is just a language machine and, and that it's up to them to see if it makes any sense or not. And there were earthlings prior to computation. Um, prior to computation. Well, prior to what? computers and computer networks. And oh, these kind of uh, yeah, but uh, yes, I, oh, I think there have been for probably thousands of years. There have been, I, I think that's really what religion is all about, uh, that, that there have been individuals. But the problem is, of course, they didn't have the language adequate to talk about it. So they may have had the effect of, of breaking the identification with the voice and, and expanding into something that, you know, but whenever, when, then they immediately started talking about it in the language that they had available to them. Mm. And that language, again, it's like, the, that's why I like that electricity analogy in 1800. It took a couple hundred years for them to develop language adequate to talk about electricity so that you and I can talk on Skype. Language is what had the change before they could do anything reasonable with electricity because they didn't have a language. And that's what we're in the – at least that's sort of what I see I'm in the process of doing is working on developing language that actually makes some sort of sense around all this stuff instead of the bullshit we've inherited. In the Matrix, how do we exist other than through language? I haven't – I don't know. I I, I don't know. I don't know what that, that, you know, it's just, these are just a bunch of analogies for me. You know, I've seen the movie, The Matrix. I get the idea of a Matrix. I, I mean, we're yeah, here the now. The Matrix movie has got nothing to do with your metaphor of the Matrix. I mean, oh, it, it has things. a great, not, well, they're separate things, but they're quite analogous in many ways. We I, live. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Here, he, you and I part company very definitely. My view is uh-huh. that the, the Matrix has got nothing to do with, computation networks what, no what it has showing... to do no what i'm talk, talk, talking about is a sensory experience the origin of sensory experience i guess in a sense is irrelevant that's just a story taking a slight tangent here i can't take the film the matrix seriously and i'll tell you why it's filmed in sydney australia the whole notion that sydney australia is the future is really very striking to me. I mean, I used to travel to Sydney quite a bit. That's mate. hardly a criticism of the concept. <laughs> well, except I wouldn't even attribute... I mean, my view is that The Matrix, as you use it, has very little... Well, perhaps it's just my own biases that I've put in your description associated with The Matrix, or at least aligning with my view of The Matrix. But my well, you've got Matrix your is, interpretation of what I say, and I yes. suspect it's quite different than my interpretation. Clearly. <laughs> highly different. Highly different. Here's a question from uh, Connor Seitz Bowen, who's a fellow on the Facebook group. I should point out, for new listeners, we have a relatively active Facebook group. So if you want to throw yourself amongst the Stone Ape listenership, the best place to do it really is on Facebook. Yeah, there's some, uh, like I said, there have been some interesting discussions and people are posting stuff there. That's really cool to see. I love that. Yes. I mean, I'm going there. I mean, that's part of my regular routine. It wasn't before. I mean, people (laughs) post on my 
website, and I get a lot of good stuff going there. Yeah. Or not my website, but my Facebook page. And um, and I and I belong to other things, but I don't go to them. You know. Mm. <laughs> so. Well, yeah. I mean, part of you know creating the Stone Ape podcast was a part of kind of creating a Stone Ape community as well. I, that's I, that's listen. That's the only reason to do this. Oh, well. You and I once said For me. that it was actually quite a good point, just you and I rapping on occasion. But well, but, yeah, well, yeah, but that, even that was within the – like I say, I've always got an agenda. Yeah. Even just you and me rapping, uh, like I say, it still goes up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Connor Sites Bowen asks this question. I really like this question. And out of all the listeners of the questions this week, this one was my favorite. Yeah, my, this is the one where he asks, what's my favorite color, right? No. No, oh, okay. Never you mind. both seem to have a familiarity with Robert Anton Wilson's books uh, and yes. ideas. Oh, yeah, I remember that question, yeah. Roar is highly associated with Discordianism, Chaos Magic, and other occult work. Yeah. Are there pieces of occult work that have resonated with either of you? Well, you know, what's interesting is he says, and he points out correctly, that he is highly associated with that. I think he thought they were all a bunch of idiots. Oh, without question. You know, uh, th- th- yeah, but that, that was a field that where he could find open minds at least. And, um, but I don't think he believed any of that shit. He, he didn't believe anything. In fact, if he did, he had a brain tumor. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yes, he's highly associated with that stuff, but I think, uh, <laughs> he'd be here laughing with us about it for the, for, well, and, but even that, see, that's the thing is that I, I can't say for sure that there isn't something true, real magic, because, you know, the truth is I don't believe anything. So therefore anything is possible just because I don't understand how it could be possible. Mm. And I'm thinking, you know, there may actually be something that, well, but then there's that old uh, Arthur Clark or Heinlein thing that any sufficiently advanced civilization or technology looks like magic. Um, so stuff that we might call magic might just be technology way beyond us. So I've started to realize that these, these questions to the listenership, these questions never actually end up towards the direction in which they're asked. If I, if you, let me, let me, let me answer. Okay, well, let's ask, what is the question again? <laughs> you both seem to, you see, the problem is the questions are just too long and Heron gets lost in the questions and never, well, it gets no, lost I read in the this stuff. No, okay. I read all this before. And I'll, was, I'll just do the question yeah, part. Yeah. Are there pieces of occult work that have resonated with either of you? Ah, okay. Um, yes. <laughs> in my case. And you've got to take the fact that I don't, I'm, I'm very much of Heron's view that I don't exist as a coherent whole form at this particular point in time. There have been points in my life where I have had very strong interests in the occult. When I was about five, well, maybe four or five, I was absolutely fascinated with making potions. And I never got to the point of distillation, but I got pretty close. We had a wide variety of chemicals and other things that I had access to. And I had particular rituals associated with taking, you know, various berries and various leaves and leaving them in jars that I'd hide away <laughs> and they'd ferment off and I'd pull them out and they'd be my, you know, potions for particular things. I think I got to the point where I wrote at the time as well, where I would make notes on them and these kind of things. So that was kind of my, my potion occult. I then got very interested in amulets and finding old rocks and wrapping wire around them and, you know, tying on bits <laughs> of rope and things like this. This was Tom yeah. age five, six, and seven. And then I started programming computers. And I realized that all the magic that I had found in these things, I could actually put into software. 
Yeah. And that yeah. basically, you know, revolutionized my ideas in terms of where this mysticism lay. Yeah. yeah. And truth be told, I have, I mean, I'm a bibliophile, so I have a particular resonance with books and the books book that I, lover. I have interests in are oftentimes very eclectic and some of them are quite dark and some of them are quite, you know, interesting in a kind of curious way. And I think there's an element of the occult through some of that reading. I'm particularly interested in reading about various cult aspects of the SS and, you know, various kind of demonic aspects of certain things. And really, I guess this is resonating with with Robert Anton Wilson as well. But, um, Mm. yeah, I mean, if if you showed me two coins and then said one of them had, you know, some mystical connection with something, I might be more interested in the one with the mystical connection because it had a good story as well as just Yeah, it's always nice to have a good story. Hell yes. (laughs) So in this regard, Connor, I hope that I have offered a reasonable answer to your question. Well, then let me actually answer uh, in a little more detail than simply uh, yes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've read some of Aleister Crowley's stuff, Mm -hmm. and uh, I like Crowley a lot, <laughs> you know. Um, magic seems to me to be more of a about, about changes in consciousness than than these outer things. I mean, mm-hmm. those you know, th- those don't even. Well, if they turned out to be true, w- which I've never had any validation of in my life, like potions and things like that, mm-hmm. then there might be some reason to pursue that. But the idea of changes in consciousness by incantations or herbs mm-hmm. <laughs> or other things, um, that's the part of magic, and that's what Crow- or Crowley talked about, too. Um, I mean, it really, I mean, usually the idea of magic is this sort of mumbo-jumbo bullshit, you know, but I mean, there, magic is a big word that 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 can go in a lot of different directions mm. and and for me the con the, the the idea of change of consciousness the ability to change someone else's consciousness even that's magic mm. and to conclude this point connor you are part of the stone ape cult keep smiling brother keep smiling anyway moving on from this so chris abbott i think has sussed to the fact that we're not actually answering questions, intentionally trying to enrage listeners. And um, Chris writes... <laughs> say that again. <laughs> so we're intentionally not answering listener questions. This is, the and, and this is a way we attract more people exactly. here. This is our marketing yeah. strategy. You need to get it. to okay. a point of rage before you become right. a true Stone Ape devotee. Anyway, Chris writes, Appreciate that you took the time to consider my query re- ways of handling the inevitable conflict with language monkeys. Mm. However, I was hoping for a little more from Heron. Okay. When the change comes, the language monkeys will likely perceive anyone who is aware, awake, as a threat. It doesn't help that many of these people are well-armed and prone to rash (laughs) rash actions. You got that, brother. (laughs) It may be that as the percentages of uh, Earthlings increase, the language monkeys will begin to act even more irrationally. Oh, yeah? Yeah. As they see their habitat dwindling. Yeah. Not all of them will change or accept the change. Yeah. As they won't sit quietly to to die off. Yeah, while their world collapses around them. As distasteful as a lot of them are, it can't be easily said they'd all be better off dead. <laughs> okay. Chris Abbott, our postal listener. Yes. Yeah. 
I guess my my perspective is, and I've spent more time this week because I actually have one of these frames, and I could normally create, I think, even a legally reg. Or actually, I probably couldn't create a legally registrable firearm in California. But I do think still that we owe ourselves, as the Israelis and the Swiss and various other groups do, I think the view of self-protection in these circumstances is certainly something that I toy with. What interests me through this is actually the law in California and the adjustment of federal law against these self-made guns came through a shooting that occurred, I think, in Santa Monica in July of this year, where a kid killed his father, his brother, and then went to the local university campus that he attended and gunned down a couple of passers-by before the cops finally shot him. He made a one of what they call these 80% frames and used it in this, um, you know, this random series of acts of violence. And this is what is actually motivating the legislation associated with this. Oh, man. Increasingly, I think that you have to make a choice in these circumstances, whether you either run very fast or whether you defend yourself in these circumstances. And uh, my view is that running very fast has always been the option that I've considered. But as I get older and perhaps... No, you may just sit down and die. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just accept your fate. Yes. I think these ideas probably exist best in audio form. And that's something, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I continue with Heron to do these Stone Ape recordings, because I think we need to be independent of our physical forms as we put these kind of ideas out. I'm less utopian than Heron is associated with the future, but I certainly think we've got to do our bit in terms of pushing these air particles right well, now and well, see it's what not, happens. Well, it's not impossible that we could actually have paradise here. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know what the actual odds are, but then neither do you, <laughs> you know. So yes, all I have is the statistics up until now. I am the thanks. Yeah, and that's turkey. and that and that doesn't prove anything. Again, there's nothing in the caterpillar's life that that suggests a butterfly. Yes, unless you've seen it a thousand times, and then you go, oh well, of course, yes, I can see this, I can see that. <laughs> so I guess what Chris is asking here is really, did you actually listen to the KMO audio after he finished editing it? Did he present it back to you? No, I think he did by giving you that link. You just had to use the link to download. Well, I mean, whatever it is, I didn't listen to. Okay, it. so at the end, he, he always he yeah. always does this. He interviews the person, and if they're particularly objectionable, like I've been previously, and you were on this occasion. He then has a little wrap-up where he talks to his listeners and says, it's more interesting to understand that the monkeys are safe in the zoo because of the zookeeper. And he used a series of uh, metaphors <laughs> uh-huh. to describe the fact that uh-huh. you don't need a full planet of absolutely conscious entities in order to be a conscious entity. And you don't need all these kind of higher, you don't need all these kind of leveling relationships if you have hierarchies that, you know, maintain you in your comfort or what have you, which uh-huh. I thought was a bit of a kind of letdown from the standard Heron Stone approach. But what interested me through this and through Chris's question as well is the notion of does it really require everyone? Absolutely oh. everyone. No, not everyone. I'd say, you know, 90 something percent. The the question is, is, is the other, whatever's left over, the question is how much of a problem are they going to be? And how much are we willing to put up with? If you had... 10% earthlings, 90% language monkeys, but the 90% language monkeys were vastly happier, better fed, better educated, oh. 
more comfortable than that. Oh, absolutely. That would be been. a huge benefit. That certainly would ease the transition a great deal. We could take our time. There wouldn't be any pressure, really. Mm. That would be wonderful. So that's the upsell to the language monkey, fundamentally, isn't it? What? That there are there are ways in which they could be sustained in whatever they enjoy. They could be watching Dancing with the Stars. Yeah, that's right. You know, have eaten pizza, a go to work uh, in the morning. Yeah. You know, punch the wife good night. You know, and uh, yeah. yeah, great. But yeah. with more Dancing with the Stars, <laughs> you know, whatever, there'd be yeah. some vast benefit. And I actually, this is actually the conclusion of the much discussed when the flowers died. That actually, the way that you get to these kind of utopian positions is by Converting or convincing rather than traditional revolution. Well, it's, well, no, it's by educating their children. It's too late for most people in their 20s, unless they've already got a spark left in their thinking and questioning. Uh, by the time people are, have hit their mid-20s, they're pretty much brain dead, brain-frozen language monkeys. How you old know, were uh, you when you came to I your... was 21. Okay. People are very young 21s now. Well, things are changing quickly, too. So, I mean, that's just, you know, that's my analysis from my experience 40 years ago or whatever it was. Um, so, um, I, like I said, I expect it's going to get a lot easier to wake up. So, I'm, that's you know, the reason I'm optimistic is that, I, yeah, if, if, it's, uh, if it really does become a huge us against them, uh, you know, Earthlings versus the language monkeys war. That's going to be really nasty, man. It would yes. be really nice to avoid that. Yes. <laughs> and again, the only way I see is by waking up as many people as, as soon as possible. And, um, yeah, like I say, I, I expect it's going to take 30 to 50 years. And, and I expect it's still going to get, well, it's already ugly as hell if you happen to live in the wrong place. Mm. You know, I suspect that life is going to get a lot uglier on this planet over the next 30 years. I hope not, but. So speaking uh, about being in the wrong place, and this, this took me actually most of the week. I've been walking to and from work this week because my spiritual advisor has been away. And this has been one of the questions that I've reflected on the most heavily through the week, and this is from Joe the Drummer. You've spoken here and there about the popular notion of the 1% and the 99 economic division of our societies. I feel quite aware that while I'm a member of the 99% as an English person in London, I'm also a member of the 20% richest people in the world. I'm in the group due to the power of the 1%, and I am as powerless as a member of the 80%. However, I get a pretty comfortable life at the bottom of that 20% compared to those on the outside. Should we be more aware of our privilege, even as we denounce the shyster yeah. bankers and corrupt politicians et al.? Absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely right. We, we are blessed to be among the oppressors. <laughs> you know, I mean, it would be a lot tougher, like, you know, being uh, born in Somalia. We got it. We got it made here and we need to be very uh, aware of just how lucky we are. <laughs> hmm. Funnily enough, I disagree. OK, my view is actually that an economy or more importantly, a cost of living is a local concept. And having lived in Malaysia and Thailand, I'm very well aware of that, having traveled through Thailand. In a country where food is subsidized, where the assumption is that you will have, where a majority of the population will only earn a certain amount of money, there are ways in which these 
countries exist, I mean, this is really the second world here, not third world, where living on next to nothing can actually be quite comfortable and considerably more comfortable than being in, you know, the bottom one or two percent in London. Yeah. So my view is actually rather than this, which I unfortunately equate with a kind of bourgeois attitude associated with, oh, how privileged we are to live here in this environment. It's just privilege that I can live with a roof over my head and not have to work, you know, in a pit mine somewhere, you know. The fact that I can I can work a couple hours a week, you know, and make enough money to live poorly, but uh, to have lots of time to do what I want to do instead of working my life away with manual labor, try, trying to make a, a living. But I, also, I'm aware of the fact that I chose not to get married and have a family and kids and be responsible for all that shit. Hmm. I mean, I can barely take care of myself. And, and I wisely, I think I'm, I'm really have to give myself some props on that, realize that I wasn't up to providing for other people. <laughs> there are people in almost all cultures, though, that exist like that. Yeah. And the interesting thing, actually, about this notion of what, you know, what money is worth, it's completely relative. You look at concepts like the cost of food. You look at the concept of cost of shelter, the cost of clothing. Listen, all of that, I understand exactly what you're saying. If you want to go live somewhere, well, see, actually, it doesn't really make any difference where you live. It depends on your circumstances and that, because in, in Africa, there are plenty of places that are right here with you and me. I mean, they're, you know, if you've got the money or the, situ- the right situation, you could live very well there. As long as I got an internet connection, I don't really care where I am. Hopefully nobody's shooting at me. That would be nice. <laughs> I, I guess my summary to Joe the Drummer, to paraphrase you in earlier conversations, is that the game that we are in is not a game to be won. We shouldn't think of ourselves as winning this game. We should think of ourselves as moving beyond the game. Well, it depends on what the game, how you define the game. I'm defining the game as metamorphosis. So, yeah, I'm here to win. I'm here to create a butterfly. If we don't create a butterfly, then, uh, well, so be it. We didn't have what it takes, <laughs> you know. But as long as I'm here, that's the game I'm playing. That's the story I'm committed to until I find a better story. I don't believe that that's the truth. I just don't know a better, more inspiring story. Hmm. So I guess this is part of my view associated with changing the five stupidities fundamentally. Because uh-huh. I think you need to offer, in the five stupidities, you do offer a slightly better story, though. Well, it's all, yeah, the story around the five stupidities is what counts. The five stupidities are really trivial. I well, agree. The, the isn't. Uh, well, it's a, the thing is, they're trivial to just know them. Like, to, say, to list them, say, oh, the, absolutism, dualism, blah, blah. That's trivial. That's irrelevant. What's profound is actually applying them. Certainly. But to say them... To get the information to someone versus having to go and find a podcast, then listening yeah. to the podcast, getting past the story that many people have heard previously associated yeah. with the doctor and their family. I mean, to move beyond that. But I guess my view with regards to the, the five stupidities in eight seconds was to provide the Wikipedia links in parallel to them to give ah, people the insight yeah. to actually click no, on the links and think yeah, about them that, accordingly. That's a great idea. Yeah, there's nothing to prevent. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. You give people six words or whatever it takes and a link to Wikipedia. Yes. Yeah, sounds think, great. Certainly. Yeah. 
Yeah. See, that's not in opposition to what I'm saying. That's just in addition to. Hell yes. Well, I guess my only concern is that when you talk about the five stupidities, that you talk about it in a phrasing where, firstly, they're immediately inaccessible because you say, go and listen to this podcast. So, firstly, yeah. find ah, the podcast, I see. Okay. Yeah, right, work yeah. your way through that process. Yeah, that's right. I'm saying if, if, if you're not interested enough to give 56 minutes of your life to this, if it's not important enough to do that, then never mind. Well, I think that's the wrong message. Well, maybe, but you're giving them a link. is just basically the same thing. They're going to spend it's, a hell of a lot more time yes, following with that their link. Own, with their own thoughts. They're well, not going like to go that. through some audio conversation okay, you're right. with okay. and ups no, you're and right. stories you're right. and all this other stuff. You're, no, listen, you're absolutely right. I should offer both of those possibilities. Listen to this. Or go to you know, give me a link, man. Put it up on a, on a, on your site somewhere. I have, but I'll do it again. I'll do it on yeah, your but, page. But put it in the context of someone I send there. Okay. All right. And uh, the next time it it seems appropriate when I tell people to go listen to the five stupidities, or take this link here. No, here's here's what you do. You say go to YouTube, put the five stupidities of English. You'll get three versions. You'll get my ten second version. You'll get the unauthorized <laughs> 50-minute version, or you'll get the, you know, one hour, what have you. See no, which one they, minutes. Yeah, right. okay, one they listen to. Better. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're good. If you've got, you know, an hour and yeah. a bit. You got an eight-minute ver- eight or, yeah, no, eight-second version, yes. right? The eight-second version, uh, an hour version, and a 56-minute version, sure. Yeah. Well, and the 50-minute unauthorized version that also comes up. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Well, clearly they're going to listen to the eight-minute version or eight-second version, and they're either going to do something about it or they're going to go on and listen to one of the other ones if they're interested. Yeah. You know, yeah. Well, but at least they'll have the options. Yeah, I agree. They should have all the options. The fascinating thing with the longer version is that about 1,200 people have listened to it, but because you don't own the YouTube channel, it's owned by some independent person who I've never heard of before. How many? 1,200 people have listened to that? but... YouTube has statistics associated with how many people, when they drop off, listening to it. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is the critical part. Ah, uh, yeah. Do they listen to two minutes and exactly. hang up? Well, I, You'll never get that data. Yeah. Well, you're right. I, I don't know. I'm assuming if they get through, because it starts off, I think, pretty strong with that. You no, know, that, I that, disagree uh, completely. Oh, okay. I think well, you lose people through that because, firstly, it's either a story they've already heard they're not clear why they're listening to the story, and there's no in- introduction associated with that. They just get this story, which most, yeah. I, I would argue, well, a number of people yeah. have heard, and it doesn't, yeah. in fact, introduce the concept other than just oh, it saying does it entirely. It un- well, it, you it, assert that, but... Absolutely, about un- the nature of unconscious assumptions and how they can interfere with our ability to think clearly, if they're incorrect. Connor cites Bowen asks... Wait, are we done with that? We're on to a new one now? Why not? What was what, what was that one? I don't feel complete on that one. What was the question again? I never got really... It wasn't a question. We were rapping about the five stupidities, and then I put forward the, the eight-second version of the five oh, okay. stupidities, which okay. address certain things, and then we ended okay. up at a point of pause, and I thought, why don't oh, I go I, with oh, We didn't actually address any of his questions yet. We've addressed one of his questions, but this is another question. What was the first one we addressed? The first question we addressed was associated with, oh, with Robert Anton Wilson and, uh, oh, okay. All and, right. Yeah, what they resonated. Okay. Connor Seitzbowen asks Are there structured exercises one can do with a rascally language monkey to pull the awake earthling out of them, even if it's only for a moment? 
If there are, can you give us some mm. instructions? Yeah, great question. Love it. That's really what I'm working on right now is developing a curriculum around this. One part of that, I, I don't really like the word, and, and I'm not going to use it, but it don't, it's one most people are aware of is, is meditation, is sitting quietly for at least 10 minutes a day with the intention of observing your language machine. So it's not really uh, meditation in that sense. You're not trying to end the stream of thought. You're just merely observing it without getting involved with it. Um, and I would say if you do that at least 10 minutes a day, two hours a day would be good, but most people don't have the wherewithal for that. Uh, and you could split it up. You could do five minutes one time or, you know, you can do it any way you want. The more time you spend, and it's important to be doing it with an intention. It's like almost anything you do with an intention to, to achieve something will, will contribute to it. Because of the intention, it changes what happens. So, so having the intention of becoming more aware of the language machine and distancing yourself from it, um, and studying it like a scientist would be to sit quietly for 10, 20 minutes every day at, at the same time, preferably, uh, and just sitting quietly and doing something that would look like meditation to other people. And there's some finer points to this, but I won't go in, but that's certainly, uh, Certainly one of the processes that's going to be part of, of, uh, of Gendo. Um, and then, well, having a partner to work with is very helpful. If there's someone else, you know, who's interested in doing this too, then to merely get together on some sort of scheduled basis and talk about it ups the ante, <laughs> you know? So really, again, it's being engaged in some specific a repeatable activity with the intention of uh, breaking the trance of the language machine is good. And eavesdropping is good too. Just again, is, is just to listen, for instance, on the word the, it's, it's about 6% of all printed text. So you can listen to anybody talking for 30 seconds and you're going to hear a few thes. So uh, again, that's a way to focus on the language stuff itself and observe how the language machine functions and what its impact is on things. So those are a few things. And, and if you do, but again, knowing that's irrelevant, it's, it's actually applying those things, doing them on a regular basis for months uh, that can have a big impact. And, and hopefully in the next, you know, months, um, I will have sort of finalized a, uh, a product. <laughs> so I guess my response to Connor, and I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again, is just as I was leaving Las Vegas, the co-workers that I'd worked with for, I guess, I don't know, at least a couple of years at the company that I worked, gained an amazing sense of respect for me. Because firstly, I was leaving. And secondly, I was going to Netflix, which even at that time was a well-respected company. And I guess they'd never really thought much of me up until that point. But one of the co-workers who actually sat next to, I mean, he was, his cube was next to mine. I said, you know, I talk to this linguist every Friday night and his big thing is that the voice within your head isn't actually you. And that he pause. Well, <laughs> what is it then? You know, and I yes. said, well, actually it's something that is programmed. It's not just programmed through your experience. It's a language it's machine. The, okay. let me That's continue. the perfect yes, answer. I, well, except <laughs> okay. no, because what you're trying to do here is not jargonize the concept. 
No, you're trying to get them to get a handle on it. Exactly. And jargon is not your friend in some of these circumstances. Uh, I I don't think it's jargon. I think it's an accurate description. Well, it is is after the fact. But if you're explaining this to someone for the first time, you want to treat them. Well, you're right. Listen, you've got to deal with the person in front of you. I might might do it differently in different situations. Exactly. So anyway, I presented us in this form. And he thought about it, and I explained to him that it was, you know, your parents, society, a wide variety of other things that create television, television, <laughs> yeah, popular culture, what have you, and that you, you, sh- you didn't necessarily need to embody that. You could divorce yourself, or at least become aware of it. Yeah, and you could begin to edit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then appreciate that it wasn't always working to your best interest. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. It was something that was in, and that was a good point where you could, I yeah. could see in his yeah. eyes, yeah. Yeah. he realized That's... exactly what I was saying. All right. From... All right. That's great. So Congratulations, I agree with you man. that you, That's good. you should, you know, you obviously have a rap associated with this, but sometimes it actually helps. And this is particularly going out to the rascally language monkey scum that you bring it down to basic fundamentals. You know, you give it to people without the jargon, without the concept. Well, you've always got to deal with the individual human being in front of you and and work in a way that works for them, not for me. (laughs) So, yeah, and I can do that. It's just that generally speaking, I find the concept of the language machine easily understandable by most people in most circumstances. There are times when I won't do that, though. You're right. Uh, I feel the same way about Noble Ape Parent, and we've had this conversation many times that my relationship with my work is something which is alienating to a good portion of the population. I would put to you that your relationship to your work in this context may actually be somewhat alienating to a good majority of the population. There may be. Could actually be receptive. To On the other hand, it may be alienating just the people I don't want to hang around with. Well, that's a good quip. But, no, I'm uh, quite serious about that. I really am serious, and I think probably the audience, the audience I'm looking for is 1% to 2%. 10% would be nice and certainly make it viable economically, <laughs> but um, but most of that 10%, I well, I'll have to, you can deal with them. I'll have to hire somebody to deal with that from Very 8 good. to 10 <laughs> because I don't want to deal with them. <laughs> Very good. So Joe the Drummer asks. <laughs> Joe, thank you, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> he's still listening. We haven't offended him enough. Yet you talk to him and yet he's still listening. Anyway. Joe the Drummer asks, you spoke about how by discussing ideas about alternatives, we are pushing against the entrenched power structure of society. I agree this is the case. A revolution by language monkeys won't change anything. At the same time, do either of you have any ideas about things we can do beyond the contemplating that might aid this pressure? I feel like Heron's do as little as possible in the system is pretty revolutionary. Oh God! Hold on here. I gotta. How do I do this? <laughs> See, I don't use phones well. I just want to hang up. I don't want to answer. You press it. the top. Just the little button on the top. Oh, the power button. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. <laughs> I need someone to teach me how to use my iPhone. Very good. <laughs> Joe, um, I, I think we answered your question. Oh, oh no. yeah. And the the thing is, again, I think that the the real effort is to uh, educate children. That that's what we can do. That's the only thing that I can see that's that's really revolutionary. Somehow, we got to get to the children all over the world 
Well, the English, well, yeah, every, like I say, part of my threat, what I'm thinking now is the hundred most populous cities in the world and creating something in each of those cities to educate children, uh, to uh, maybe under the auspices of teaching English or something, uh, but teaching them about language and how, what it is and how it works and what they're not. I think that'll do more to change the world than any, anything else I can imagine. So what Joe is pointing to here is your kind of slacker. I mean, my view is that do as little as possible in the system is popularly defined as slacker culture. Have you heard this uh, term yeah, before, Harry? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Th- th- well, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I understand that. To me, it's just... Uh, to me, it's just economic necessity. <laughs> you know, I mean, if if you choose to live like I do, you just don't have much money, and you have to figure a way to live at a level that you can be comfortable with, uh, with very little money. I've reflected very heavily in the past week because my spiritual advisor has been away, associated with this phenomena. There is something that I get with my career, which is not associated with. Um, money. And it relates specifically to being surrounded by intelligently driven people who give me, through my interactions with them, in, in a, a number of cases, amazing ideas. The jamming with them on some level oh, yeah. helps other aspects of my life. Absolutely, yeah. There, even at my job in the newspaper, one of the editors I work with, it's really sort of fun. You know, he's a smart guy. We've got it down between us now. I mean, he knows what I need and so on to get the thing to work right. And, um, you know, it's sort of fun to put the paper together with him. Yeah. The Yeah, people. <laughs> okay, so that's associated with the paper. The people I work with are, are sufficiently diverse, basically, both ethnically, but also in terms of their ideas and the areas that they work in. They're yeah. taking something like, well, the phenomena of model rail radio predates my time at Netflix, but certainly my time at Netflix has reaffirmed a number of the methods that I used with regards to model rail radio. And the thing that I really enjoy currently about Stone Ape is the ability for folks who are just absolute zealots of the format to do things like put up Stone Ape, you know, pamphlets or what have you, <laughs> as a means. And look, really, honestly, folks, this is a reaffirmation of the format to me. So the best possible feedback people can give is sticking up the flyers. Currently. Oh, that's so awesome. I think that's just awesome. And that yeah. somebody actually, well, of course, we don't know who how that tab was missing. <laughs> I'm, I'm suspicious. Yeah. But, but in any case, we'll assume somebody pulled that tab. Exactly. And they might actually be listening to us rapping currently. They, well, no. Well, that's right. They could be listening to one of the previous recordings. Well, right. well even this one, because this one will come out in time. Oh, that's right. This is right now. And they might be, you're right. Excuse Not me. Not right now. <laughs> but... Uh, Right now can have quite different meanings, can't it? <laughs> yes. I'm sure right now is in the future for most of us. <laughs> but I, I think it interests me that by having access to this environment, I'm actually upping my game in terms of a variety of other ideas. I'm not, I agree with Heron's choices in terms of his, you know, the things that he's picked. And I'm always playing in parallel to this narrative what is the easiest way off the treadmill. But I think for me, I would probably be very, well, I mean, potentially if I could use 
my, you know, energy, intellectual energy, uh, 100% on my own projects. My own projects would be in a completely yeah, different space. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Yes. <laughs> but having said that, the experiences that I've had, both historically and up until today, have dramatically shaped my projects and probably shaped them for the better. And because I can't extract myself from it currently, I've got to utilize what I have is learning. Um, and I can't discount that in my own life. So, yeah. Well, everybody's different. That's the whole thing is it really <laughs> hearing other people's stories is interesting and you can get some ideas from it. But ultimately, uh, everybody's got to create their own life to do the best they can. <laughs> you know? If you have ideas that you want to promote and propagate, it's interesting being in an environment where ideas have to be promoted and propagated anyway. And particularly when you're looking at massive quantities of data on one side and also people on the other, particularly if you want to get information out to people in a broader sense, you can learn a lot of stuff. I think the thing that interests me from Joe's particular question here is that we my response has always been to this which i've kind of periodically put through these recordings having answers is the way to you know find rather than not having answers rather than talking about potentials in the future or what have you having answers associated with what's going on currently in particular answers that are strangely tangential to what is going on in the kind of general community to be Different and interesting and pointed and also topical is a very useful skill to have. And I guess I would put out to the listenership that if we can kind of seed these ideas through. For example, just before talking to you, Heron, I have to watch, you know, 10 hours a week worth of Netflix. In the process of turning off the television from the Netflix on the television, I caught a glimpse of what is going on currently in popular television consciousness, which is yeah. 50 years since the death of oh, Kennedy. That, yeah, right, yeah. And the thing that astonishes me through this is how completely monotonous and completely... <laughs> it's astonishing to me the one man in a book suppository to... Uh, Make a long joke. <laughs> Firing down onto this president driving past. Isn't it amazing how this great man was snuffed out in an instant? If the JFK narrative has told the population anything, and thankfully, Heron, your generation is still keeping this idea alive, it's don't trust the don't trust authority. Don't, Shit, don't believe anything exactly. you hear your own language machine say. If yeah. you can't believe that, you sure as hell can't believe anybody else. <laughs> so my view is that our, <laughs> our responsibilities as individual agents in this simulation in front of us is to sow as much dissent, <laughs> even passively, in our interactions yeah. with people, ah, which will yeah. immediately identify us See, as I, being my, my strategy is changing on that. I, that's been my strategy for many years. I'm really getting more and more sort of, I mean, I still have the tendency to, you know, to try and bash the old system, but I'm really, I think it's going to be more useful to focus on creating paradise than it is to uh, bashing the old system. One of the ways that we have gotten listeners, Heron, is by providing a distinct not necessarily alternative narrative 
to a wide variety of ideas. And I think that has resonated with our listenership. That is why our listeners keep coming back for more of this stuff. Is firstly, sure, they're going to hear certain similar monologues. You know, um, KMO actually censored your rant. He put oh, in a really? strange buzzing sound and completely removed the four-minute rant or whatever that you have put in there, I'm assuming. Uh, well, I have the original recordings, and yeah. they'll come out when I get around to <laughs> When I get around to it. <laughs> Yes, I'm actually not going to... Re- I mean, the people have contacted me because I have heard it and I could get the audio yeah. and propagate it, but I'm not going to release it because, firstly, I don't think it's your best work for your best Well, work. like I say, yeah, yeah, it, it wasn't meant to be an, in, an exposition, yeah. But I also don't think it's KMO's best work, and I think, actually, as you say, it's two people having a conversation where yeah. the third party listening into that has yeah, to wonder, it, what are you actually doing here? Yeah, right, absolutely, yeah, that's that, that makes sense to me, yeah. I mean, I thought there were some interesting parts of it. Yeah. And I, and I say I will publish it in its full. So. Have you told KMO that? Uh, he knows what I do. <laughs> he knows never to trust Heron Stone. Well, yeah. no. I mean, I told him I was recording it. And he, he knows I podcast and I put stuff up more or less unedited. So. Very good. This is probably more than people need or want to know, but, uh, most of the year, I don't just because I live alone. I don't wear clothes. <laughs> you know, there's not much point in it. <laughs> but in the winter, I mean, I I just recently started actually wearing clothes at night. <laughs> you know, so yes, it's it's beginning to get chilly. Yes. So it's, anyway, yes, it's funny actually living alone because when I'm when I'm with my wife, I don't wear clothes either. In fact, mm-hmm. it's nothing to do. I think my wife and I both have a, a very well, why, comfortable view yeah, associated yeah. with each other's bodies, and it seems yeah. kind of ridiculous. It's funny, yeah. actually. I'm not supposed to talk about this, but I'm going to because she's not yet. <laughs> Her quilting friends are all really modest women. None of them show their bodies to their husbands. And she's she's telling me this while she's naked, and I'm pretty well naked too, and we're just chatting as we do. And yeah. I said, that is just surreal to me that... I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. it's one of the things, I mean, clearly yeah, you nakedness don't have to be, is for sex. <laughs> clearly, you don't have to be married in order to have these kind of experiences. But I've always, I mean, it's part of body image more than anything that I think in general, the average person has such a poor body image. <laughs> they don't want to see it. Yeah. They don't want to see they, it in themselves they, or in others. Yeah. And quite frankly, I'm just Well, so and I'm frankly, they're probably right. Well, no. I mean, <laughs> this is the thing is that the whole psychology associated with body image is just really, from my perspective at least, and this is someone who's had many operations to look like a human, a presentable human being, his toe removed, had bits chipped off his hip to stuff in his jaw in order to make him look more like a human, all this kind of crap. My view is actually, as you are so against, you know, the internal narrative, what have you, the language machine, I, one of my crusades is this whole body bigotry thing is just ridiculous. We need to start (coughs) thinking in terms of things other than what we are prescribed to say, which ultimately is the language machine as well. Yeah. But moving moving on from this. So yeah. Well, but I think it, what we're talking about is the difference between a healthy, functioning body and a sick, diseased body. That's an interesting concept. I guess my view is that what we're typically told about body image is very, very prescriptive and doesn't have anything to do with... Human- Look at tribal people. Yeah. 
Look at the way, look at their bodies. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean by a healthy human being. Yes. Yes. Anyway, that was an interesting digression, Harry. We we need to get a few more of these. I'm really yeah. very mindful. Yeah. Let's get us like a survey. How many people uh, don't wear clothes at home? Yeah. I'd be that'd be interesting to find out. Yeah. You know, I mean, generally speaking, I don't. I mean, I, I do. If you know, I mean, if I'm going out, I get dressed and I may come back and leave clothes on for a while. But basically, yeah, I don't see any point in it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, amen, brother. <laughs> I, I wear clothes socially, but funnily enough, yeah, know, it works at the office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the revolution will truly come when we uh, are able to uh, walk around naked in the office. Definitely. Wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> yes, yes. So, Joe the drummer is simpatico with what I've described associated with your authoritarian streak. He says, "I'm down <laughs> with the idea that we could arrange stuff." So we could live well off a few hours of work per week or whatever. I agree that this would free people up to do better things with their time than the rat-in-a-cage crap most people seem to do. However, putting this into place globally with a join-up or (laughs) fuck-off contract sounds like it's bordering on the fantastic. Yep, sure does. Well, you know, Joe and I had a fairly long discussion this week uh, about that stuff because I I wanted I wanted to answer those questions for him mm. and answer his objections or his reactions to them. So I've been over this extensively with him since then, since he wrote that, and um, and these are all projections about a future. How we get to the future <laughs> is the problem, <laughs> you know. Um, how we get to that place. Uh, is just full of real dangerous possibilities. So my friend Douglas Rushkov is similarly, I mean, his view is that the way to, you know, deconstruct capitalism and money and these kind of things is to do exactly that. I've always wondered what... To do exactly what? To stop working. That's not what I'm talking about. That's that's not the point. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Stop working. The system has to be – there's still stuff we need. We need to live. We need food. We need housing. It needs to be maintained. There's all sorts of services, power, and information that need to be maintained. Someone's going to have to do that shit. Well, that's an interesting concept because actually a majority of those things – can be constructed with far less labor. Oh, I know. That's exactly the point. That's why I'm talking about two weeks, three, four weeks work a year. Here's the when you divide it among among everybody, then it becomes... But here's the subtlety with the stop working mantra. Mm -hmm. The system needs to reinvent itself. It can't... There's no transition. There's no easy transition. That's the acknowledgement. Yeah, right. Yeah, that. no, this is a new world. We're creating a new world. And the the only way to move from where we are currently to where we want to be is to completely shut down. It's like no, rebooting No, that's not phase. the only way. It's That's one way. It's not the only way. That's not the way metamorphosis works. It doesn't shut down the caterpillar and, uh, and boot up uh, the butterfly. It's a gradual process of replacement over uh, an extended period of time. And it ends up with an integrated new system for a new environment. But it's, it's, a, it's a process that takes place in time. 
And in this case, I'm thinking 30 to 50 years, probably. So in the caterpillar butterfly metaphor, the caterpillar parts, many of them do shut down. Oh, yeah. Many of them disappear. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of it. Probably most of it. But it doesn't just happen overnight. It's, it's, it really, it's done on a cellular basis, cell by cell. Cells die, cells change, new cells are born that take over. It's a very complex process. Studying embryology is very enlightening about how this process works. But it's a very complicated process that takes place in, in the case of punctuated equilibrium on the surface of Earth. It takes thousands of years to work it out. In a butterfly, it takes a few days. If things were all right for the caterpillar, the caterpillar would maintain itself. They would continue to be things like worms, for example. Yeah, this gets into more metaphysical stuff. I mean, the nature of, I mean, if now you're talking about, I mean, again, I see this as a metaphorical thing. If you're talking about actual caterpillars, they're embedded in, in this earth. They're part of that whole process. I guess my point is that I am, um, historically, I haven't been sympathetic to Rushkoff's views. Mm-hmm. I've taken different exceptions to the exceptions that you've chosen to take this evening mm-hmm. in of itself is interesting but i do understand the which i think joe the drummer is acknowledging as well but you've actually talked to joe so you might have a better insight i do understand that there are certain parts of these processes that if they're just continued if they just continue on it kind of perpetuates the problems that these processes present so I, I don't really understand what you just said. Well, the notion of shutting things down in order to create new things. Mm. The well, the monarchy is a good example. Yeah, though, there are a lot of things like that that probably will be shut down. We'd probably be better off without them. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I agree. It's just I don't see it as a blanket thing. I think we need to take them on a case by case basis. So the three offerings that I have presented through Stone Ape recently, our Politicians are war criminals. <laughs> they have no legitimacy. We need to reclaim our own responsibilities to ourselves through participating globally through electronic communication in order to basically not replicate, but show that there are improved methods over the old. And finally, the way in which we have to, and here it is a shutdown argument, Mm-hmm. shut down the old system is by developing new and um, tangential yeah, better systems that, yeah, of, right. of conveying value other yeah. than the current ways of conveying value. Yeah, all of that. I don't see any problem with that. And I think it's post-Rushkoffian, fundamentally, in the order, but I think it offers some degree of prescription associated with transition. Like I say, the details of how the transition work, I mean, I've got lots of ideas about it and lots of fantasies and thoughts, but, you know, basically, I just don't know how it's going to work. But it's not bad to say those things out loud as an option. No, we should say everything out loud and consider these things and and think about these things and figure out what part we as individuals play in this and what we can do if there's anything we can do. That uh, will, you know, foster this emergence of the the butterfly. Um, yeah. Joe continues. <laughs> Surely, if such a system requires the language monkeys evolving into beings with improved consciousness, then most people would gladly contribute 
to society's protective requirements. Absolutely. That's the assumption this whole thing is built on. Yeah, you get a planet full of Earthlings, and it's not going to be a problem. I would rather allow some people not to pull their weight than force people into exile, since that would entirely change the atmosphere under which people would be living. Yeah, yeah. Well, those issues are going to be uh, problematic. I don't, you know, my my solution is, I certainly don't think we need jails, <laughs> you know, for people who don't want to play. You know, people who, uh, you know, are c- creating problems for everybody else, uh, putting them in jail just strikes me as ludicrous. I mean, you're either going to play by the game, you know, you're going to sign on and play by the rules and get the benefits and pay the price, or you can go to Australia. <laughs> so what happens if the population of Australia grows and through the population of Australia you end up with a super language monkey? It's well, that's just... their problem. No, no, I mean, no, no. They no. have to deal with it. Well, it's their problem for the short term, but progressively, and I would imagine potentially through boats or other means, the mm-hmm. language monkeys could escape from Australia and these No, 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 that's part monkeys. of... Yeah, well, there's... A, listen, we're getting to science fiction now. I mean, yeah, Without that's question. possible. My, my sense is uh, it needs to be monitored and it needs to be isolated. I mean, just like our body does. So how's Australia system. not jail in this concept? Well, it's not jail because it's big enough to do what the fuck you want to do. If you're smart enough to get organized and ma- make something reasonable out of it... You know, it's not like a death sentence or a jail where you're just stuck. There. You're there. You're free. You can do any goddamn thing you want, given whatever the hell is going on there. You know, or you can stay in Earth and uh, work two weeks a year where the, we tell you to work, and in the rest of the year you're off and don't fuck with people and don't cause problems. So part of the transition is. Well, it's interesting. Listen, the transition is the whole problem. <laughs> well, it's a, part of the transition is so rooted, rooted here, rooted in the idea that what you have to do is, is from the language monkey's perspective, fuck with them and cause problems. Huh? Same. Your your argument was that we get to this place where people agree not to fuck with other people and cause problems, to use uh-huh. the heron term exactly, but. From a language monkey perspective, up until that point, the earthlings are fucking with them and causing problems. Uh, yeah, obviously, yes. Yeah, that's true. Uh, from, the from the perspective of, of a Christian... And causing problems is, yeah. is the thing that will get us to the, the point of, of utopia, then that might actually be something that is... I mean, Wilson will just have to deal with it. I, I agree with you. There, This is full of paradox and full of... Uh, questions that I certainly can't answer. I don't know how the hell we're going to move from where we are to where I want to be. I don't think it's impossible, though. I think it's actually, in fact, I think it's inevitable. I think if you come back 200 years, 300 years from now, you're going to find a planet that's quite different than this planet. You know, I mean, again, like science fiction, you know, a planet uh, where there is no war, there's no hunger, there's no... And there's still all sorts of problems to be dealt with. Just reality will always present something. But there doesn't have to be increased additional problems created by our own stupidity and unconsciousness. So a question that came up, which I think actually represents this, and I don't know who to attribute this to actually in my notes. It looks like a Joe the Drummer question, but it could actually be someone else. Can freedom and individuality 
coexist within a communal and altruistic society. Absolutely. Yeah, I don't see any opposition in those. No, I, I see you can be a complete individual. Like I say, I, I always think the Borg on Star Trek got bad PR. You only see them during the two weeks when they're on duty. The rest of the time, they're dancing naked club med people, <laughs> you know, having a good time. Two weeks a year, they check in and do their job, and then they get the rest of the year off. You know, individuality, com- the communal reality, they go together. They complement each other very nicely. Maybe we might wrap up this evening's recording. Having promised a long recording, You're getting folks, tired. Well, listen, you're going to have to edit the shit out of this thing anyway, exactly. so it really doesn't make any difference. No, no, it does, because if you have to edit the shit out of three hours' worth of hack cough recordings versus an hour and a half worth of hack cough uh, recordings, yeah, you're right. You're right. distinctly different. And my, yeah. my sanity right. has to be maintained through the process. I, I agree completely. You do what you got to do. So I will conclude, however, with this notion of denial of service email attacks, because I've had periodically this occur to me I'm getting in the order of about 200 emails every five minutes. And my view is that these things are so... Well, for me, it's I, the, the worst I've ever experienced. Actually, two phases I've experienced were particularly bad, both when I was on the in the UK, both when I had died. Are these all on Windows machines? Or does that make a difference? No, it makes what? no difference whatsoever. They're mail servers, so they're all they're all. Okay, so so, anyway. so the server is what's been infected. Then. No, it's, it's not, not my no, not. it's not an infection. What it is is someone intentionally setting off a program that will generate as yeah, I, I know two hundred emails. Yeah, right. Five minutes. It's called yeah, it's called a virus. No, I, it's not no, 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 no. No, these well, things I mean, are targeted. Yeah, okay, all right, but this I mean... It's an argument of denial yeah. of service. Okay. My, oh, this is targeted to you specifically? Uh, I'm not clear on that, but I have had experiences where it has been targeted to me specifically. Ah, and right. in those circumstances, I basically <laughs> had to shut the service down, and I actually... Yeah. Had to, when I was in the UK, I would call people well, in the US. What can you do about and, that? Well, if they're coming from a single entity, which you can typically track, you can then go to their service provider and say, Stop I'm having it. a... Yeah. Denial of service, shut this account down. Yeah. I've been able to do that on two occasions, one with a commercial American group and one with a Malaysian group, and I was able to shut both of them down. This one, because I haven't been paying attention for the past week, and I do have relatively good spam filtering, it's only when... Oh, that's the other thing. My iPhone stopped collecting email a while back. I Bruce Damer has had this problem as well. Because we maintain independent email servers we don't immediately integrate with apple's mail client on you know the iphone yeah. we're not using yeah. gmail or anything yeah. so yeah i've i i shut my email down this week we also i should point out for follow-up for people listening in as we quickly conclude this recording we didn't get the house so ah. um we'll be continuing to look but yeah that one apparently there were three offers and someone came in at a higher offer so yeah they can have it it's there yeah yeah no, it wasn't yours <laughs> it wasn't mine it wasn't my wife so we were comfortable uh yeah. in our continued the booking. right one will be will approach and yes. uh, yeah it'll be fine we actually now know exactly what our asking price should be and we're never ever going to go any higher if we go higher it will affect our quality of life in such a way that yeah you don't want that to. yeah exactly yeah. You so, want to be able to be comfortable and have fun. Exactly. So, yeah, we, we are now completely simpatico associated with that. And there's still houses that are coming up through that process. So the search continues, Harry. Yeah. So with that, I feel obligated to allow you to rest your voice this evening. We've covered, I think, a majority of the questions. Well, we can always do it some other time. Um, yes. Anyway, and we'll it's- collect even more questions this coming week. Amen to that. 
Yeah. A pleasure as always, Heron. Do rest your throat. Okay. Good All night. Right.